Before we get started jumping into the Bible, I wanted to tell you a little bit of a story. See, last summer, last summer, my house got infected by rats. Like, real crazy rats. Like, did you know in Yakima, I've learned more about rats in the last year than I've ever learned. Did you know in Yakima, between 16th and 65th Avenue... Between Lincoln and Knob Hill, like there's a large rat population in the city of Yakima. Did you know that? I learned this, okay? I learned this. Now, this is the grossest thing. When you think about rats, and let me just clarify, they weren't, well, they were in the attic. They never made it into the house. They were just in the attic, all right? But these were not just any rats that were inside of our house. This was the Olympic uh, uh, gymnast team of rats in our attic, because we would be in, 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 downstairs in our house and we hear all this running and tumbling going on above our heads. And we're like, what is that? And the first time my wife, my wife heard it, she said, did you hear that? I'm like, no. And the second time, the third time. Finally, it got to the point where they were making so much noise, I couldn't deny that I heard it, right? And so these, these, these gymnast rats, they were practicing all night long. Um, they must have been, uh, you know, practicing at night. That must have been their favorite time to practice because at night is when they were the most active, running up above our heads. And uh, so finally, my wife's like, you got to do something about this. So we, we went and got some, some rat traps. Now these are, you know, you think of a mouse trap. A rat trap is like three or four times as big. All right. So just, you know, I'm, ladies, I hope I'm not grossing you out. I'm just trying to share my life with you. And so, and so uh, I'm not an expert at catching, catching these rats. Um, but you know, I did have a couple run-ins with them. One time I crawled into the attic to go see him and my kids will remember very clearly when I screamed like a girl, cause there was a rat, it's like 10 feet away from me, just staring right at me and it caught me out of nowhere. But we did get some courage and we get, did get after them. So we got these, these rat traps and you kind of bait these rat traps because if you just put a rat trap up there. It's not going to work. And so you take some peanut butter, you put some peanut butter on the trap, and you hope that it attracts the, the rats. In fact, it got to a problem where we call the exterminator. And we're like, hey, what would you do? And he said, well, if you hire me to come and deal with it, I'm going to set a couple rat traps in your attic. That's what I'm going to do. And I'm like, well, I can do that myself. And he did say, he did say, though, what we found, though, is that rats, their favorite candy bar is a payday candy bar. That's like, Peanuts with like that really good nugget in the middle of it, you know? And I'm like, how'd you find out what their favorite candy bar is? Did you take a survey? Like, did you talk to a couple of them, figure out what they like? So we put these traps in the attic. And uh, sure enough, a couple days later, we caught two of these beasts. And it was a very proud morning for me when I crawled in there and found those traps with a couple of rats in there. Uh, But the problem was, is uh, they must have invited all their friends because that noise in our attic just kept being louder and louder. And you hear all those feet going up and, uh, up and around. So finally, one day we were outside in the backyard and I saw one of these beasts on the roof. And so we found that the, the hole was probably the size of a half dollar. It was a very small hole that they were climbing into our attic. And man, I patched that thing so, I mean, I patched it up for, for feet just covered in, in metal so they couldn't get through there. Uh, but the problem was, even though we patched the hole, we found how they were getting in the attic, they were still in the attic. We had to do something about it. And my rat traps, they started out really good. We caught a couple, but they, they kind of slowed down and they weren't catching as many rats. It's almost like the rats got a little bit smarter. And so finally I said, all right, Sam, here's what we're going to do. We went down to the feed store and we bought, we bought some, some rat poison. 
Okay? Now, rat poison is very interesting stuff. If you've ever dealt with rat poison or, or mouse poison or whatever that is, that little piece of poison is actually 99% rat food. And it's only 1% of the poison that is called uh, bradyfercalum. Bradyfercalum, I think, is the term of it. Okay? And what happens is that, is that poison, it thins that, that, that rat's blood out to, where that point, to, to the point where that rat begins to hemorrhage. And it kills the, the rat. Okay? Now, the thing that's very fascinating about this, if you were to set a bowl of poison up in the attic, and those rats are smart enough. I mean, they're nasty creatures, but they're smart enough that they're not going to go and eat straight up poison. And so you have to mask all of that poison with something good, something enticing. And so you take that poison and you put all this food with it, and the rat begins to be led by its stomach. It smells that food, it seeds that food, it smells that payday, it smells whatever's in that, that, that trap. And that rat will follow its nose, follow its belly to its death. This is why poison has to be uh, marked with something that will appeal to the rats. So they are led by uh, their desire. They're led by their stomach uh, that, to eat something that will slowly kill them. Gr- rats are gross. I- I'll just str- straight up say it, it was the worst month of our life. Praise God we got rid of them. Uh, praise God we found the hole and all of that played out. But I began to realize as I started looking at our, our, our passage today of how many similarities there are between rats and us as people. Now, I know some of you are like, yeah, yeah, this person next to me, they're like a gross rat. I get that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about how you and I, I mean, we're, we're smart enough that we're not going to walk up and find and, and take poison on our own. We're not going to go and do something that we know is going to bring harm to us. But what happens is oftentimes sin and things that are destructive to us, they become, they become um, masked with something else. Where they look like they're good for us. They look like it's something we want. And so pretty soon we find ourselves enticed by our own desire. And we go pursue something that we, know, that, that we don't know is going to be detrimental to us. But down the road, man, it brings suffering. It brings hardship. It brings trauma. It brings consequence. And this is what happens with us. Where we are so much like these rats. Where the things that are going to hurt us are masked by things that look good. things that, uh, And so we become influenced by our own desires. And when we're influenced by these desires, man, it can lead us to all sorts of bad places. So today we're going to, I'm going to ask you to open your Bible to the book of James. Uh, the book of James. We've uh, just started a new series on the book of James. We're going to spend the next couple of, a uh, uh, couple more weeks looking through this, this book that was written by the brother of Jesus. And if you remember last week, that's one of the reasons why I'm so excited about this book is because it's written by, man, Jesus' brother who was with Jesus from the very beginning, who saw everything. And so last week we saw that James, uh, he began his book talking about trials. And this is something that we all face. We all face trials. We all face hardships. And we said that James said that those were a testing of our faith. And so we understand that. But now today we're going to be in uh, James chapter 1 verse 13. Uh, verses 13 to 18. We're going to see that James is going to transition from trials into temptations. He's going to shift from trials into temptations. And so uh, James chapter 1 uh, verses 13 through 18 is where we're going to be. And as I began studying this passage. One of the things that stuck out to me is when you look in the original Greek, the, the two words, 
trials that we studied last week and temptations that we're going to study this week actually come from the same Greek uh, root word. They come from the same word. They just have a different uh, tense. And so you're looking at this and saying, trials and temptations, are these the same thing? And no, they're not. Because when we understand what, what James taught us last week, James taught us that trials are a testing of our faith. This is a way that God gives us a circumstance to see, do you really trust God? Do you really uh, honor him? Do you really going to follow him even when things get hard? And so a trial is a testing of your faith. It's usually from something on the outside. So you have a circumstance that happens in your life and that becomes a hardship for you. And the question is, are you going to remain faithful to God? But temptations are something different. Temptations is this desire inside of us that wants to be disloyal to God. And that's what a temptation is. It's a desire inside of us that wants us to be disloyal to God. Usually, temptation comes from within ourselves, comes from within our heart. And you say, well, are these two things, trials and temptations, are they related? Well, oftentimes there are. Oftentimes you go through a hardship, you go through something difficult in life, and you have this temptation where instead of trusting God, instead of being faithful to God, you have this temptation to take the easy way out. Or to try and please yourself or to try and uh, 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 remove that, that, that difficulty on your own. So, for example, a trial might be this. A trial might be getting stopped by a security guard at a gas station because of the damage you've caused to the gas station. Like, that's the trial. You've got this trial in front of you. And the temptation comes when it slips into your mind and you start thinking, you know, I'm a gold medalist. Like, I'm not going to accept this. Like, I could, I could play the victim here, and I could say I got robbed, and I can make a whole country look bad. Anybody see the connection there? I thought that was great. A great analogy of what a trial was and how that progresses into a temptation. And this is what it looks like. We, we're, we're given a trial, and oftentimes in the middle of that trial, instead of trusting God, the temptation comes before us. Hey, you need to take your eyes off of God. You need to fix your own problem. You need to deal with yourself. And so many of us uh, go to the point where we have uh, stressful lives. We have stress in our job. We have stress in our marriage. We have stress in life in general. And what happens is when that stress comes, that's the trial. And the temptation then becomes, hey, I'm going to seek an escape. I'm going to seek an escape from my, my stress by delving into alcohol. By delving into pornography and getting a few minutes of that stress reliever to try and make things better. The trial comes like this. The trial comes in, in students. You have a desire. I think about you young people. You have a desire to be liked by other people. You have a desire to be accepted into your, your school, wherever you are. And the temptation then comes. You have a, desire, a temptation to compromise your moral values. So that way other people would like you and accept you. Okay? The trial comes where you're experiencing loneliness. You're desiring a relationship. You're desiring community. You're desiring a significant other. And so what happens oftentimes is there's this temptation then to be obsessed with your appearance, obsessed with your body, obsessed with whatever it is. So that way, hopefully you can find a, a relief to that loneliness. The, the trial comes where somebody hurts your feelings. Somebody hurts your feelings and makes you feel bad. And then the temptation comes in where you want to lash out. You want to you just pour out your, your, your wrath on the other person. This is how trials and temptations are often related. And this is why I think it's important that we have this conversation about temptations. Because the reality of temptation 
Temptation is something that everybody faces. Christians, non-Christians, uh, believers, unbelievers, we all have the same issue with temptation in front of us. In fact, I would say, I would say this, that, that probably the greatest PR problem that Christianity has, okay, the greatest PR problem that Christianity has is when Christians attack people who are struggling in the midst of sin as if they have no struggle themselves, okay? And so this is something I want us to be real with. I want us to be able to look and say, man, what are the temptations that, that are in front of us? What are the things that we're dealing with? How do, we, how do we process through? Because James understands the relationship between trials and temptation. James, remember, James is a pastor. He's a pastor at the church in Jerusalem. And he understands the, the struggle that people are going to have. And, and, and he knows that our natural self is when we're given a temptation, when we have a temptation to do wrong, and especially when we give in to that temptation... Our, our, what we, our, our natural state it wants to blame somebody for that. So, so we have this temptation that comes over us, and, and we give into that temptation, and we want to blame somebody else. It's, well, it's their fault. They did this to me, and that caused me to do this. And so this is a pattern you see in, in, in Genesis chapter 3 at the fall of man. God put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Remember this story? Put him in the Garden of Eden, and he said, you have this entire garden that you can have full advantage of. Except there's one tree that you're not supposed to eat of. There's this one tree. Okay? Remember what happened? Satan comes, tempts Eve. Eve takes a fruit, gives it to Adam. They both eat. And what happens? God comes down and says, hey, 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 you did this. You did this. And remember what happened? God says to Adam, you did this. And Adam blames Eve. He says, it was Eve's fault. The, wife, the woman you gave me, she gave it to me to eat. And what did Eve say when God said to Eve? She, he said, well, the serpent, the serpent... He tempted me and, and caused me to take my eyes off of you. And so this is what we do. We want to blame somebody else for our sin. We want to blame someone else for our problems. You know, and, and it might be something, it might be, well, you know, it was my parents. The way they, you know, they did this to me when I was young. And that caused me then to, to go into this life of rebellion. And I'm not going to say that, that how you're raised doesn't have an impact on it. But I want us to understand we can't just shift blame to somebody else. That doesn't work. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is speaking, and uh, kind of on this issue, Jesus says that, that what our temptation, what we do, is we, we like to notice a speck in somebody else's eye, and, and, and forget the whole two-by-four in our own eye. And so here we go, we have this issue, we have this problem, and, and instead of taking ownership, we want to blame somebody else and say, well, hey, this person did this little thing to me, and that caused me to do all of this bad stuff. And Jesus is saying, you can't do that. It doesn't work that way. And the other thing that we sometimes happen is when you're dealing with a temptation and you go into, you make a bad choice, you make a bad decision, you know you go into sin. Then sometimes what we want to do is we want to blame God. We want to blame God for the hardship and the trial that we came into. And so what happens is you go through this trial and uh, you have this temptation then to take your eyes off of God. And, and, and you get into sin and you say, well, God, it's your fault. If you wouldn't have, have, have made this hardship in my life, I wouldn't have been unfaithful to you. And this is where I begin to think about all the excuses that people make towards God. Like, it's God's fault. God made me this way. I mean, I think about this. How many of us have said at whatever point to our spouse and to our friend, it's not my fault. It's just the way that God made me. It's not my fault that I have an anger problem. It's just the way that God made me. It's not my fault that I, that I, I have a lust problem. It's just the way that God made me. Think about this. This is something we hear in our culture today. Why would God give me these desires if he doesn't want me to do them? See, the question is, how many times do we have sin in our life 
that instead of us taking responsibility, how many times do we just blame that on God? It's God's fault. It's God's fault that I responded this way because he made me this way. James is going to be very clear when we're dealing with temptation. He's going to make a very clear um, response that we can't blame our sin on somebody else. And then he's going to give us some, some practical uh, instructions, some help to how we deal with our temptations. So before we jump in, I'm going to just ask you to join me in a word of prayer. God, I just want to thank you for who you are today. I want to thank you for the opportunity we have to open up your word right now. And that God, Pastor James, Pastor James, the author of this book, God, I pray that he would speak to us. God, I pray as we deal with this issue of temptation, God, I pray that we wouldn't be thinking of somebody else that needs to hear this message. God, I pray that each of us would be willing to look at the ways that we're tempted. Be able to say, God, would you speak to me in this way? God, for those that are, are struggling through temptation, have given in to temptation too many times, God, I pray today that you would encourage them. That there is victory over the temptation in our lives. God, pray that your Holy Spirit would just rest on us now, that you would give us understanding and that you would speak clearly to us, Jesus. We love you and praise you and we ask this in your name. Amen. So the first thing that James is going to teach us about temptations is he's going to teach us that God is never the source of our temptation. Okay? Here's what he says in verse 13. James chapter 1, verse 13. James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. He says, God cannot be tempted. And the key here is he cannot be tempted with evil. I mean, absolutely, Jesus can endure trials. And we saw this, Jesus endured several trials. When you think about the temptation of Jesus in, in the beginning of the gospel stories, we saw Jesus, he endured the trials that were set before him. But in his nature, Jesus, being the son of God, sin and evil are completely foreign to him. There's no desire in his heart to be disloyal to God. So even though he's in the middle of this trial, even though he's in this middle where, or, hey, I want you to take your eyes off of, of God, Jesus says, no, my eyes are always going to be on God. I'm always going to seek to please him. And so God cannot be tempted with evil. And in response to that, because of his nature, he's not going to put a temptation in front of you and me. He's not going to tempt us with evil. He doesn't put evil in front of us and, as a way to say, hey, I want you to be disloyal to God. God doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't do that. And this is where, again, you've got to understand the difference between a trial and a hardship. Because some of you are in the middle of trials. Some of you have these trials in your life, and they've been going on, and it's this weight and this burden. Man, that trial, that hardship, that is God putting a test in front of you. Are you going to remain faithful to me? That's not a temptation. The temptation comes from somewhere else. It comes from this desire where God gives you the hardship and you want to take the easy road. You want to you please yourself. You want to satisfy yourself instead of trusting in God. God doesn't tempt us to turn our eyes away from him. He does bring trials to test us, but he does not entice us with evil. So the question is, okay, if, if the temptation doesn't come from God, Okay, God gives us trials, but he doesn't give us temptation. Where does, it, where does the temptation come from? Is this where we can say, hey, Satan, it's Satan's fault. That's why I have all these temptations inside of me. To, to rebel, to, to, to pursue sin, to pursue whatever it is. James is going to say, no, you can't blame it on Satan alone. What about 
what about my parents? My parents, they, you know, they, they weren't very good to me when I was growing up. And James is going to say, no, you can't blame it on your parents. Well, what about, you know, what about that temptation where that guy cuts me off and I wave at him with one finger and I cut him off and I tailgate him? Like, that's his fault that I responded that way, right? And James is going to say, no, you can't blame it on that guy either. Here's what he's going to say in verse 14. He says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. We are tempted when we are lured and uh, enticed by our own desire. See, James is teaching us first that, that God is never the source of our temptation. And he's teaching us secondly that temptation comes from within our own hearts. Within our own desires. And we are, we are just like that rat. We're just like that rat where there's this thing in front of us. And again, it's not just straight poison because if it's straight poison, most of us are smart enough to avoid it. But it's covered in something that looks good to our flesh. We have the desires inside of us. Desires to be happy, to take the easy route, to satisfy ourselves, uh, to have happiness. And so we have these desires inside of us. And we become enticed by that desire and we pursue that thing that's so negative for us that's, that's hidden because it looks good for us. See, if you were to define desire here, desire is an intense longing for that which God has forbidden. That's what desire is. It's, it's intense longing for what God has forbidden. I mean, you can, think about, you can think about the example from the fall of man. We'll come back to Genesis chapter 3. God puts Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He says, you have the whole garden to eat and enjoy, but that one tree, don't eat of it. And this is what happens. This is what happened in verse, verse 6, Genesis chapter 3. It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, she saw, hey, it doesn't look bad. It looks good for food. And that it was a delight to the eyes. Again, it looks good to me. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. See that word desire right there? She's looking at this fruit. It doesn't look bad. I mean, it looks good on the outside. And so she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave also some to her husband uh, who was with her. And he ate. And suddenly Adam and Eve are longing for what God had forbidden. This tree. This fruit. Because, hey, it looked good. It looked like it was going to satisfy. It looked like, man, a desire to, to, to be wise. But it led to horrendous consequences. That one disobedient act led to uh, sinfulness being extended to every person in humanity. And see, this is where I want us to understand our hearts. Our hearts are desperately wicked. This is what the prophet Jeremiah says in uh, Jeremiah 17, 9. He says, our hearts are desperately wicked. Who can know it? Like, we like to think our hearts are good. Like, we're generally good people. But the reality is, our heart is always going to be bent on rebelling against God. It's going to be bent on pleasing ourselves instead of following and, and pleasing God. And so this is where we're looking and saying, man, I see this in front of me and it looks good. But it's not. Because our hearts are wicked. We can't see through the, the, the food we can't see through the rat food and see that there's poison in there. All we see, hey, it looks good to my flesh. I want to pursue that. And so that's what we end up doing. Sin is so often hidden. And the example that James uses is he gives a, a fishing analogy. He says, he says that, he says, sin is lured. Okay? Now, 
I'm not a huge fisherman. Like the biggest fish I've caught is about this big, all right? I'd love to catch bigger fish. It's one of my goals is to catch a, a, a salmon. I've only caught trouts. I'd love to catch a salmon one day. But this past summer, we did go crabbing on the Oregon coast. Anyone ever been crabbing? Like, I, I enjoy going crabbing. We do this for the first time in a boat. And, and what happens is you're given this cage, okay? And, and what happens is these, these, these crabs, they, they go inside the cage, and then they can't get out. So it gets, traps them inside. And so we're going out, and you have to use something inside of that cage to attract the, to attract the crabs. Because the crabs, I mean, I mean they're not going to walk into this cage because... And they know they're going to die. They know they're, they're going to be my dinner. I mean, they know, they understand that. They're not dumb. And so what you do is they give you, uh, they give you either chicken or, or fish. You take some fish, uh, a fish head, a really stinky fish head. You take some chicken that's kind of souring. And you put that inside of that cage. And all of a sudden, those crabs, all they do is they smell. Hey, there's food right there. You smell that nasty chicken? That sounds really good to me right now. You smell that nasty fish head. That smells really good right now. And this is the analogy. This is the analogy that James is giving us about temptation. Is temptation always looks good. There's something about it that appeals to our flesh and entices a desire inside of us. And, and, and we can look at this in a couple different ways, and we'll look at it in just a second, the different ways that it entices us. But that is what sin does. It makes it look good on the outside, but the reality is, Man, there's a hook underneath there that's going to hook us. And it's not a good thing. And this is the same thing with us. We're enticed by our own desires. We want the easy life. We want pleasure. We want peace. We want what looks good. And so we look past the danger of it and just are led by our own desires. I think how many of us in here can think about our own lives and think about some of the hard places you've been in some of the consequences you've dealt with, and you're like, man, that is exactly what happened. Like, it looks so good, it looks so innocent, but man, down the road, this led me down such a dark path. Led me down to addiction. Led me down to, to broken relationships. Because that's what sin does. It looks so good to us on the outside. You get down there, man, and it's such a trap. And so James is writing, and he gives us this, this, this example of a, of a fishing example. And then James, he understands guys sometimes have a hard time listening. So he gives them a fishing example. And now James is going to give the guys uh, an example about sex, okay? And all the guys start paying attention when James talks like this, okay? He says in verse 15, he says, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin has fully grown, brings forth death. See what James just did? is he gave us the anatomy of what sin looks like. He's saying this is a process that sin looks like in our lives. Like we have this desire in our heart. We have this desire to turn away from God, to seek comfort from something other than God. And this is where, this is where that temptation comes in. You're in the hardship. Uh, maybe it's a financial hardship. And instead of trusting God, you say, oh, I'm going to go and maybe I can just steal. Maybe I can just slip some money uh, that nobody will know about. And that's that temptation. That's that desire. And those thoughts and those desires, they come to your mind. And listen, I want you to see in this anatomy, this anatomy of a sin, that's not a sin yet, just to have a temptation. Temptation is not sin in itself. But it's what you do with it that, that determines whether or not it's going to progress into sin. Because the anatomy that, that, that James gives us in verse 15 is that desire, when it's left unchecked, it's conceived. 
means that desire gets put into action. And that desire then gives birth to sin. And sin, again, when it's undealt with, man, sin leads to death every time. So here's just a practical example of what this looks like. Let's deal with, let's deal with a, 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 an issue that many of us are going to have, even though we don't want to admit it. Let's deal with this topic of anger. Okay? How many of you would say, I have an anger problem? A few of you. That's good. You guys know yourselves well. Okay, I'm going to guess that a lot of us, a lot of us at various times will, will struggle through anger. Okay? And, and what, starts, what starts is our temptation. Where does it start from? Your anger usually starts because maybe somebody hurts your feelings. Maybe somebody disses you. Maybe someone doesn't value what you're saying. Maybe someone doesn't recognize you, the contribution that you've made. Maybe somebody doesn't acknowledge you. Whatever it is, and your feelings get hurt. Okay? Is it wrong to have your feelings hurt? No? That's not a sin. That's not, that's not, that, we all struggle with that. Okay? That's the trial. That's the trial that God has put on you. Your feelings got hurt. How are you going to respond? And so, what do we do when we, we have that moment where we have that feelings get hurt? Now, many of us are going to try and assign a motive to the other person. We're going to look at the other person and say, man, that person hurt my feelings. They did it on purpose. They were trying to hurt me. They were trying to, to kick me down. They were trying to, to, to do, trying to hurt me, whatever it was. They're just a mean person. And so we assign a motive to the other person. And this is when the temptation comes. Okay? Our feelings are hurt. We feel like the other person did it intentionally. And so our desire then is to justify ourselves. Our desire is to justify, to, to give value to ourselves. Somebody hurts our feelings and we think, I deserve better than that. That person shouldn't have done this to me. I am better than that. I deserve better than that. And so, and so what we end up doing is we, uh, we, we want to justify ourselves. Instead of allowing God to bring vengeance, we say, no, this person needs to suffer because of what they've done to me. Again, this is, remember, uh, Jesus talked about how we always want to notice the speck in somebody else's eye instead of missing the big log in our own eye. And so you have this temptation to uh, justify yourself, to bring vengeance for yourself, and so this is where, this is where that, that temptation is conceived and turns into sin. That person's hurt your feelings. So you're going to start gossiping about them. You're going to slander their name. You're going to confront them in a very harsh manner. You might even confront them physically. You might cut them off. You might tailgate them. You might honk your horn a thousand times. You might do all sorts of things. And what happens again when it's still not dealt with that leads into full-grown bitterness stepping into your heart where you completely discredit this person. You completely ignore this person. You treat them as if they're subhuman, like if they're not even a human being. You look at them and say, man, you've caused so much damage in my life. You're not even worth uh, the value of a human being. You devalue them that way. You've ever been in that spot or that's been your temptation to respond. And you responded that way. Like, does it ever get better? Like that anger over what that person, does it ever get better? Or does that anger just remain in your heart? I think this is what James means when what starts the desire is conceived and turns into sin. And that sin, when it's left unchecked, leads to death. Because that anger, we can feel justified, but it never really solves the issue inside of our heart. That's the anatomy 
uh, of the sin of anger. What about the sin of lust? I know, dealing with some tough issues for us today. The initial trial that we have in lust is we find somebody that we are attractive to. We find someone and say, man, that's an attractive person. Is that wrong? I don't think so. We can debate that, but I don't think it's wrong to notice that someone is unattractive. And you might look at somebody, you might say, man, I like their personality. I like their demeanor. I like their looks. The question I have for you is, are you in a setting? Is your marriage or your friends, are you strong enough to be able to talk about this sort of thing? Like in your marriage, is your marriage strong enough that you can talk about this sort of thing? Like this is why, this is why we're supposed to live in community. This is why the church has life groups. This is why we want to live life together. It's because when we're left on our own, then we're dealing with all the stuff on our own. And it's hard to, to navigate these waters. Okay? And this is super important. Why we've got to be in community together. So you're in this trial. You find this person attractive. And the question is, how are you going to respond? Because here's the temptation. Temptation comes and you want to, you want to, fantasize about this person you want to you you, you want to think about what physical pleasure with this person looks like you fantasize about them you imagine what would it be like if the two of you were together what would you do what would it live like what would it be like and guess what happens when that temptation is left unchecked that leads to sexual activity outside of marriage and it's interesting because you can talk to people who have been through uh, sexual sin and it's kind of funny when they're like, well, it just kind of happened. Like, it just, like we just bumped into each other and all of a sudden we're in bed together. That's not the way it works. It doesn't happen like that. There are tons of seeds that are sown. There are lots of fantasies that are not dealt with. And that is what leads to sexual sin. All these things going on behind the scenes that we are afraid to talk about, to, to confess, to get accountability for. It's the anatomy of sin. This is the way it works. One more anatomy of sin. Story of Johnny Cash. Anybody know who Johnny Cash is? Possibly one of the greatest musicians uh, of all time. Johnny Cash, um, he wrote in his autobiography his first experience with mood-altering drugs. Okay? This is what he said about drugs. He said, man, I thought, boy, this is really something. This is the greatest thing in the world to make you feel so good when it was hurting so bad. Isn't that the way it works? And so Johnny Cash, he carried on this love affair with pills throughout a majority of his career. In fact, as you look at his story, man, he crashed cars when he was high. He actually started a forest fire once that almost killed uh, the population of the California condor uh, bird, which was an endangered species at the time, okay? And the romance of drugs was killing him. And this is what he wrote. He said, as I've said before, All mood-altering drugs carry a demon called deception. You think, if this is so bad, then why does it feel so good? He said, I used to tell myself, God created this. It's got to be the greatest thing in the world. But it's like the old saying about alcoholics. They start by drinking out of the bottle, and then the bottle starts drinking out of them. See, we have these desires in front of us. And when they're left unchecked, they lead to sin. And in fact, you can look at the anatomy of any, of any sin in your life. You can look back and you can see this progression. There's a temptation in front of you. 
And instead of trusting God in the middle of that temptation, you say, I'm going to take the easy road. This doesn't look too bad to me. I'm going to pursue it. And so we constantly have these, these sinful desires that we're entertaining into our mind. We run through scenarios through our minds thinking, man, this, this really isn't all that bad. I mean, it would make me feel better. It would make my life a little bit easier. And some of you ha- are down that path right now. Where you're in this idea of this stage of life where, man, everything looked like it was going to be so easy. I then define, man, it's just, it's just, it's deception. Like it was, it was, it was a lure set in front of you. And now you're down the road and you're like, man, why am I in the, why am I in this mess? Why am I in this addiction? Why am I in this broken relationship? And you can look back and see this anatomy of sin. It started with that temptation. Instead of dealing with that temptation, confessing that temptation, asking for accountability, asking for prayer, you walk down that road, you entertain those thoughts, and those thoughts were conceived into an action. And here's what, here's what he says in verse 16. He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Don't be deceived. See, this is where I love James because James is a pastor. James loves people. As I stand up here as a pastor, I'm looking out on, on these people here. Man, I love this place. I love these people. And James, as he's writing this, he's thinking about all the people that he loves and he's concerned about. And he's saying, hey, in the midst of the trial and the temptation, don't be deceived. Don't be fooled. Your flesh is going to incite you. You're going to want to believe that God isn't good. You're going to want to believe that there's an easier route. Don't be deceived. This is what James said. Don't be tricked. Don't let that poison fool you. Because James is teaching us, hey, this is what you've got to do. You've got to search your heart. You've got to search those desires. Our hearts are desperately wicked. And so when you have that temptation in front of you, you've got to ask that question. Am I being deceived here? Is there, is there really like this poison that's covered in something that looks good? This is what James is saying. Don't be tricked. Don't be fooled. Don't give in. You've got to search your heart. You've got to deal with that temptation. Man, is the reason you're pursuing this is because there's a hardship in your life and you're trying to take the easy way out? And this is where James is going to come to a head right now. Because I don't know about you, but I read about this temptation. Man, I feel like crap. Like my heart sucks. Like I know how many times I give in to that temptation. I know how many times I have those evil thoughts, those sinful thoughts running through my mind. Man, I could just do this. Nobody would know. And here is where James loves people. And he wants to give us hope. And he doesn't give us six clever steps on overcoming temptation. He doesn't say this is how you get rid of temptation in your life. No, he doesn't do that. Because even as Christians, we have temptation. Let's not pretend that we don't. Okay? But what James is going to do, he's going to give us something greater. Something more lasting. He's going to give us something that will give us real change. in defeating the temptation in our life time and time and time again. Here's what he says in verse 17. He says, every good gift... And every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. See, how do we overcome temptation? The first thing we have to do is we have to believe that God is ultimately good. We've got to believe that God is who he said he is. Because I'll tell you what, the root of temptation, the very root of temptation 
is a failure to see God rightly. That is the very root of our temptation. See, our problem, our problem isn't lust. Our problem isn't greed. Our problem isn't anger. It's theology. It's that we have failed to believe that God is good. We have failed to believe that God cares for us, that God will take care of us. And so you have to see that God is greater than your desire. You've got to see him as being greater than your desire. God has to become the thing that will give you the the deepest longings of your heart. You've got to understand that when God promises to take care of us, he actually means it. And I would say the reason that we succumb to temptation so often is because we don't really believe that. We don't really believe that God is good. We don't really believe that God has the best things in store for us. See, the anchor for your soul on how to fight temptation is to believe that God is a good father. As James writes, who gives every good and perfect gift from above. And what are the good gifts in your life? What are the good gifts in your life? I'll be honest, I got a bad bat. When I was in high school, I had a rock climbing injury and I shattered some vertebrae. So I've had a bad back for years. And there are some days where I can't even get out of bed. It just hurts. And I've, and anybody have a bad back? You've been in that spot. You've just got that chronic pain. Listen, today, I'm feeling good. Today, I can stand up with no problem. I can walk to and from. I got no problem. Man, this is a good gift. This is a good gift that I can be on my feet today, that I can do the things that I've got to do. But how many of you are going to go out to lunch today? You've got dinner planned at the house. You've got, you've got food planned in front of you, okay? I don't know what we're going to have for lunch today. My wife's gone, so fast food sounds really easy, okay? Maybe it'll be chicken sandwiches. I don't know what it's going to be. Listen, in some parts of the world, you really realize that what's sitting in your crock pot right now What's on your plan for lunch today is like an epic feast in some parts of the world. Do you recognize that these foods that we take and consider just a part of our everyday, man, that is a good gift from God. That we have food, that we can get seconds, that we can eat like we do. Like that is a good gift from God. Like how many of you got friends? That's a gift from God. How many of you got a house to live in? That's a gift from God. Have you got a car to drive? That is a good gift from God. How many of you got a spouse? That is a good gift from God. And I know some of you are saying, well, you don't know my spouse. Listen, that's called a trial. That's called a trial. Like, are you going to trust God in the midst of that? Because that is a good gift from God. Listen, you want to start beginning to see God greater. You want to begin to understand the good gifts that God has given you? Do this simple thing this week. Okay? Take a journal out and every day write five good gifts that God has given you. Like think about your life. Think about five good gifts that God has given you. Man, you got a job? Put that down. You got family? Put that down. Seahawks win today? Put that down. Like these are the good gifts that God has given us that we don't even pay attention to. Man, this is probably the greatest thing for your soul. It's just to take a second and consider, man, what are the good gifts that God has given to me? And you begin to see evidence. Man, God is good. Man, God is caring for me. God is providing for me. Here's what else he says about defeating temptation. Verse 17. He says that there is no variation in God, that there's no change. 
See, the second thing we have to know to defeat temptation is that God's love for us never changes. God's love for us never changes. Here's what I mean by this. Jesus knew what he was buying on the cross. Jesus knew who you were. Jesus knew the temptations you were going to struggle with. Jesus knew that even though we're supposed to trust in God, he knew that we'll continually give in to temptation and seek satisfaction elsewhere. And we can feel like this. We can feel like, man, man, I screwed up again. Man, God, it's got to be so disappointed in me. Like I gave in to another temptation. Man, I suck. Listen, God's not watching our screw-ups. He's not in heaven watching us screw up time and time again and thinking, um, did we say anything in the Bible about a return policy? Like, can I, can I take that sacrifice for them back? I mean, God doesn't look at us like that at all. Jesus, he knew your shortcomings. He knew your failures. And that doesn't change his love for you. This is where, this is where uh, Romans chapter 8, like you might feel unworthy. You might feel like you've lived so poorly and you made such bad choices. But listen, Romans chapter 8 says that nothing can separate us from the love of God through Christ Jesus. Like, how great is that? To know that, man, even though I struggle, he doesn't change. His love is still there. Like, how can we not be encouraged just to trust God? Because his love is always there. It never changes. And the last thing, we have this temptation. We have these struggles. And here's how James ends this whole idea on how to fight with temptation. Verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You hear that? God chose you. God chose you. Your salvation, your forgiveness, it was God's idea. It wasn't ours. On his own will, on his own decision, God called you to your, himself. He looked out over the horizon of humanity and he says, I'm going to make you a part of my family. I'm choosing to call you my own. I'm going to bring you into my family. I'm going to call you my son. I'm going to call you my daughter. I'm going to bestow upon you all the riches of my glory. In the midst of our struggle and our temptation, man, Jesus sees it all. And here's what James says. He sees all of our sin. God sees all of our sins. He still chose you. He still chose you. He chose to go to the cross for you. He chose to endure those beatings for you. He chose to have that crown of thorns pressed down into a skull for you. He, he, he chose to have those nails driven into his hands and his feet for you. He chose to be raised up and humiliated on that cross for you. He chose to bleed for you. He chose to die for you. And he chose all of this knowing that you and I would struggle to trust him. Knowing that we would struggle, struggle to trust his goodness. And that we'd look for his goodness in everything else but him. See, this is how the gospel changes us. When we understand the love that he has for us. We understand that God has plans for us. That God gave himself up for us. And this is why love changes everything. Because when we understand 
Man, as, as hard as those temptations are, God chose you. Like, how does that change everything? How does it not make us want to just obey him and trust him? In our worst moment, he chose you. He gave himself up for you. <laughs> how can we not trust him? And just as we come to an end this morning, we, we think about this temptation. And someone here today need to begin to take responsibility for the sin in your life. Stop blaming it on somebody else. Stop blaming it on God. Stop blaming it on your parents. Stop blaming it on your ex. Take responsibility and understand that temptation comes because we're enticed by our own desires. And listen, in the middle of that temptation, remember the good news. That God is a good father who loves us, who gives us good gifts, who chose us. And everything has changed because of his love. I'm going to ask you just to close your eyes for just a moment. Close your eyes for just a moment. Come on forward, worship team. I'm just looking at this issue with temptation. I just, just want to ask this question. How many of you are in that moment where you're saying, man, I feel that temptation around me. I've been flirting with these ideas in my mind. In my mind, it's been running through. And how many of you just raise your hand and say, man, I've been in that spot. I'm in that spot right now. Got those temptations running around me, trying to take my eyes off of God. And I see those hands. My hand is up there right now too. Let me just remind you. God chose you. God chose you. And listen, this is the greatest news that we could ever hear. And when you are tempted to doubt God's goodness for you, when you're tempted to doubt God's plans for you, remember the sacrifice he made for you. And take that moment to look around to look around for the good gifts that he's given to you because they're all around if you look.